Well, over the weekend with the men, we spent our time uh, looking into Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 has oftentimes been likened to the, the highest peak of the mountain range of Scripture, or the most precious jewel in the jewel box of the Bible. And while we know that there are no portions of Scripture that are more inspired than others, all Scripture, the Apostle Paul tells us, is breathed out by God and is for our good and is for the building up of God's people so that we may be equipped for good works. All of Scripture is God's Word. And yet there are some portions of Scripture who, because of the weightiness of the promises of the gospel, because of the soaring and beautiful rhetoric with which they are written, those passages tend to to anchor into our hearts like few other passages do. And Romans 8 uh, is probably, for so many Christians over the last 2,000 years, uh, been the supreme example of that. And so if you have a Bible with you, Uh, I'd like you to take it and turn to the 8th chapter of Romans. I want to read for you this morning, verses 31 through 39. And let's remember that this is God's Word. This is not the invention of man. These are not mere sentimentalities, but this is God's Word. It's given by inspiration of God, so it comes to us with all of God's authority. It is God's living Word, and so it comes to us to give us life. And so let us give it our full attention. This is the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution or famine, or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Now, our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that through the reading and the proclamation of your word, you would speak to us. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us minds and hearts to understand and to receive your word with joy. We pray that by your spirit, you would encourage us and challenge us today, that you would comfort us and correct us that you would assure us and give us hope in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Lord, should I say anything that is not a faithful reflection of or exposition of your word, let it be quickly forgotten 
so that only your truth remains in our hearts today. And this we pray through Christ the Lord. Amen. Some commentators have observed that Paul begins this final section of Romans 8 with something of a deep exhale. (sighs) He's been building and building these great and precious and monumental promises in Christ that belong to all of those who believe in Jesus, all of God's people who are his by faith. And, And through it all now, there is something of a deep exhalation within this question where Paul finally asks now, What then shall we say to all of this? What will be our response to this? And surely there's a sense in which the all of this includes everything he's been writing, certainly since chapter 1, verse 18. But if you'll, as you look in your Bible, if you'll flip over if you need to, to the the very first verse of chapter 8. What are some of these things that Paul is saying? What are we going to say to this? What are some of these things? Look, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Or what about verse 11? If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Or what about verse 15? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Or verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And of course, we have to look at verses 28 through 30, don't we? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, what shall we say to all of these things? Paul asks. And notice that Paul goes about responding to his own question here by asking a series of questions himself. What shall we say to all of this? Well, let me ask you a few questions to help you through it. And there's something of a, if I could coin a term, there's something of a holy, sanctified swagger in Paul's approach at this point with these questions. Now, if you're uncomfortable with the idea of swagger, if you don't want to go Conor McGregor, then maybe there's something of a holy, sanctified confidence, you could say, to what Paul is doing here. And there is. John Stott writes that Paul, quote, hurls these questions into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. 
He challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, earth, or hell to answer these questions and to dare to deny the truth that they contain. That's good, isn't it? It's as though Paul is saying to anything in all creation that would dare challenge the anchored assurance of God's people in Christ, it's as though Paul is saying to them, you want a shot at the title? Come all, come anyone who would challenge that and hear me now. And like a skilled defense attorney who is 100% sure of an acquittal, he dares anyone to come and prosecute the sons and daughters of God. He dares anyone to come and bring a charge against God's foreknown, predestined, called, justified, sanctified, glorified people. So he begins the questions. You see? Look at the first question, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us. Now Paul is using a literary technique here. He's pressing an, uh, uh, an assertion. He's not asking a question, really. He's pressing an assertion by way of a rhetorical question. There's no, there's no uncertainty in Paul's mind at this part. Paul is not scratching his head and saying, you know, you know, I haven't really made up my mind yet. I'm not really sure. But if, by some chance, God happens to be for us, because he may not be. He may not be. I mean, especially for some of you, he, he probably isn't. Paul's not doing that. By saying, if God is for us, Paul is using literary technique here because Paul is convinced of this one thing, Christian, that God is for you. God is for his people. He is on our side. Now, can you let that sink in, Christian? That God is on your side, that he is for you? in your dungeon, in your calamity, in your loss, can you still believe that God is on your side? That God is for you? Now that doesn't mean that we must not labor to be on the Lord's side, because we should. Nor does it mean that God being for us somehow suggests that he favors and supports and blesses everything we do, because he does not. It doesn't mean that he will always endorse every one of our causes or that he will ever stoop to being my own personal champion or my own personal chaplain for my political desires. No. Nevertheless, the Lord is for his people. He favors his people above all things in creation. Now, if you want to get into a conversation with me about my kids, it won't take you long to realize that I am for my kids. And guess what, you parents, you would say the same thing, wouldn't you? I'm for my kids too. We're for our kids, we love our kids, we want things to go well for our kids. I'm for them when I disagree with them. I'm for them when I'm delighted in their choices, and I'm, and I'm for them when I'm not delighted in their choices. I'm for them when they do right, and I'm for them when they do wrong. I'm not for the wrong thing they did, but I'm for them 
What drives, in fact, the disciplinary actions of loving parents, what drives those disciplinary actions is precisely the love that says, I am for you, not against you. And Christian, God has been for you from before the foundations of the world. Hear me, beleaguered one. Hear me, weary soul. Your heavenly Father is for you. You may have been betrayed by a friend. You may have been harmed and abandoned by someone that you thought you trusted, by someone that you loved. Listen, your heavenly Father is for you. And if your heavenly Father is for you, then you can be sustained when someone else is not for you. So much has he been for you that he found you in your sin and he found you in the depths of your rebellion and he made you his own and he did not spare his own beloved son to make it happen. That's how much he's for you. He stands by you in your fears and he stands by you in your temptations and he will never leave you or forsake you. And because of that, Paul asks, who can be against us? Now, Paul is not asking if or whether anyone is ever against us, because a rather significant list can be made of those who are against the people of God. Rather, Paul is asking, who can prevail against the people of God? Given that God is for us, who, in the end, can destroy us? Since God is for us, who can ever finally prevail in their evil intentions against the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God? And of course, the answer is a loud, resounding no one. And the most compelling evidence that God is for us is found in the very next verse, question number two that Paul raises, and it's this. Since God gave his own son for us, will he now fail us? Do you see how Paul puts it in verse 32? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Since God gave his own son for us, will he now fail us? What a price that was paid for you, dear Christian. Don't you love how Paul phrases that. He who did not spare his own son for you. Have you thought recently about the price that the father paid to have you as his own? Have you meditated recently on the price that the, that the father has paid to purchase your soul from sin and to own you as his beloved child? Have you thought about it lately? Richard mentioned that I've been the pastor at Covenant Presbyterian in, uh, in Harrisonburg, Virginia for a little over a decade now. And I love that church. I, I mentioned this to the men over the weekend during the retreat. I, I love that church. I've come to know the people there. And as I look across the congregation every Sunday morning, I see faces of people who I've been in communication with throughout the week and in some cases for very long periods of time. People who, who are undergoing really pleasant happy providences in the moment, and we rejoice with them, and then people who are going through incredible sorrow and loss. 
I've stood over the caskets of two-year-olds and grieved with those parents and grandparents. The Lord has knit our hearts together, and I love those people. But I wouldn't crucify a single one of my children for them. Now, of course, we know I would never be expected to do that. You would never be expected to do that. But I'm, I'm trying to get us to understand in relative terms, what does it say about the vast reservoirs of the love of God that he spared not his own son? For someone like me and someone like you, can we fathom that kind of love? Who can possibly understand such love? Who can possibly fully take in the knowledge of such love? We sing how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. I want to join in with Paul at that point in his doxology in Romans chapter 11 when he says, oh, the depths both of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. When you contemplate the vast love of God, the sun-crucifying love of God, how can we not say, how unthinkable are your thoughts, how inscrutable are your ways. Oh, the depths of it all. Octavius Winslow was correct when he wrote, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the religious authorities for envy. But the Father for love. And Paul is so jealous here for us to have the assurance of that love. That's why he he presses that question on us. How will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things? If, if, If God, if your heavenly Father did not withhold his own Son for you, do you think he's holding out on you now? Do you think he's getting stingy now? The all things here have to be understood in in light of what Paul has been writing about so far in Romans chapter 8. The the giving us all things. You can find pastors in great big churches who will tell you that God is here to give you every single material possession you've ever wanted, uh, every amount of wealth you've ever desired, and perfect health, if you'll just believe enough and make me richer. I mean, there's plenty of preachers who will promise that, right? I've heard a few of them here in Houston. Let me tell you something, folks. Jesus didn't die to give you your best life now. Every day is not a Friday. The all things are not every material I desire, every material desire I have in this life. The all things reflect back on what Paul has already written about the glory, to quote Paul, the glory that is to be revealed in the final redemption of God's people. The glory of the age to come, eternal life in the presence of God, which, by the way, makes the best trinkets of this world fade in comparison. 
Paul is saying, look, listen to me, saints. Listen to me, people of God. If the Father did not spare His own Son for you, do you think that what He has ultimately to give you is going to be a disappointment? No. You've just seen the slightest glimpse of what He will show you when He welcomes you into glory. God's already given the most costly gift in the universe. How can we think even for a moment that he will now hold out on us? How can we think for even a moment that he will now withhold from us anything that our souls require? And so when calamity strikes, and if it hasn't struck, it will, and the old serpent comes slithering along, in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your dismay over the pain you're going through, and and, and the serpent comes along and he hisses at you, you see, God doesn't love you. Because if he loved you, he wouldn't have allowed you to go through this. You ever hear that voice? I have. It's that whisper deep down in my mind when something breaks my heart or doesn't go the way I wanted it to go or the shoe drops or the loss occurs and that little hissing whisper inside says, see, he's not for you. He doesn't have you. He doesn't love you or he would have never allowed this to happen in your life. Let me tell you something. When you hear that voice, would you do something? Would you take that old serpent by the neck and aim his eyes at the cross and say, that's what he gave me. You question my father's love for me? Let me show you what he gave me. Paul asks a third question in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God's elect is one of the ways that the Scriptures refer to God's people, those whom God has chosen, those whom God in His sovereign love has called to Himself. And let me tell you something, Christian. The only reason you're a Christian, the only reason the Gospel ever made sense to you, the only reason the message of Christ ever became beautiful for you is because God called you to Himself. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, Paul here is using forensic language or legal language, the language of a courtroom. That term, bring any charge, in the Greek is a legal term. It's used three times in the book of Acts to describe legal charges being brought against the apostle Paul. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, In actuality, there's probably no lack of voices willing to bring charges against the church, against God's elect, against God's people, right? I mean, we hear it all the time. The church is full of hypocrites. To which, when you hear that, would you just gently, and I'm serious, gently respond to that person, yeah, church is a really good place for us hypocrites to be. I don't, I mean, I mean, I struggle with living up to my confession. That makes me a hypocrite, right? And that's why I have to be with God's people, under God's word, worshiping the Lord. 
But we hear it. Church is full of hypocrites. The, the church, Christians, they're a bunch of hateful bigots. There's no end to the charges being made against us. Or what about the ways in which our own minds accuse us? We dig up a past sin. And we drag it around like a dead corpse behind us. A sin that Jesus died for. And we dig it up and we drag it around. And behind all of this is our chief accuser, Satan himself, who delights to remind us of our sin. Job, the book of Job, one of the oldest books in Scripture, introduces Satan to us as the accuser. In Zechariah chapter 3, there is recorded there a vision of Joshua. The high priest standing there in the temple, this vision, Joshua is clothed not with the white robes required of the priests as they would perform the sacrifices to cover the sins of God's people, but instead in this vision, the high priest is covered with filthy, stinking rags. And Satan comes along and he does what he always does. He brings charges against the priest. Look at these filthy rags. Who is he to represent God? And you know what? In that moment, Satan had a point. But then something remarkable happens in the vision. The Lord appears, rebukes Satan, and says, remove from him those filthy garments. Behold, I have taken away your iniquity, and I have clothed you with pure garments. This, of course, anticipates the work of Christ, who by the shedding of his blood and interposing that blood between us and our sin and declaring us righteous on the basis of his atoning death, he now clothes us, as it were, in the white garments of His righteousness. It's not a righteousness that is native to us. It's His righteousness. It's not a righteousness that we achieve by being a good person. It's His righteousness, because that's the only righteousness that can save me. And here, and here... Here's why Satan's attempts to charge you are so futile. Do you see that next clause? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? And then Paul makes this statement, it is God who justifies. It is useless to charge God's people with their sin because their sin has been covered by the atoning death of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying when he says it is God who justifies. Now hang with me, don't miss this. God does not answer the accusations against his people by making peace with sin, by saying, okay, yes, I know they're sinners, but you know what? Sin's not a big deal anymore. I now, God, declare that sin isn't a big deal and my holiness is not a really proper concern anymore. Thank God he didn't do that. He couldn't have done that because he can't change. Rather, what does God do? He doesn't make peace with sin. He doesn't excuse our sin. His answer was to justify sinners. Seeing his people's sin, God doesn't look away. Rather, he spares not his own son to pay the price of divine justice. That means, Christian, 
that your justification before God, your standing before God, has been secured by the just workings of God's righteous decree. Meaning this, your salvation, your standing before God, your justification before the Lord is as secure as anything in the universe because God the judge has said, payment has been made. You have stood as it were, as Christ has stood on your behalf before the bar of God's justice and the righteous judge has said of you through Christ, not guilty. The very one against whom you have sinned is the very one who justified you. The one we sinned against has placed himself between us and the wrath, the righteous judgment of God. And he has, in the words of the hymn, interposed his precious blood so that not a single charge can be applied to God's people. He justified you. Fourth question, verse 34, who is to condemn? Paul continues to to press his questions in legal categories here. Now he turns from a charge being made to actual condemnation. Who can condemn them? Who can condemn? Who can judge now the justified people of God? Paul rests the assurance that no one can on what I would call four Christological pillars. Do you see them there? Beginning in verse 34, four Christological pillars, namely his atoning death, his resurrection, his heavenly session, and his ceaseless intercession. Christ Jesus is the one who died, Paul writes. First Christological pillar. When the condemning voices play again and again in your mind, what will you plead? Will you plead, but I'm trying to be a good person? It won't work. What will you plead when the charges come and the accusations come? This is what you need to play, what you need to plead. Christ died. Christ died. Christ died. Martin Luther said, when Satan tells me I'm a sinner, he comforts me immensely. Since Christ died for sinners. Yes. John Newton, I love the words of this old hymn. Bowed down beneath a load of sin, by Satan sorely pressed, by wars without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him, thou hast died. Christ has died. More than that, who was raised, the The atoning death of Jesus has been validated and vindicated by his glorious resurrection. More than that, who is at the right hand of God. This is such a marvelous picture. The writer of Hebrews helps us understand it. That after Jesus died and after he was raised, having completed his work as our high priest, what did he do? He sat down. And the writer of Hebrews helps us understand the significance of that. The priests of old never sat down, as it were, because their work never stopped. Because one sacrifice had to follow the next, and the next, and the next, and the next. Until Jesus 
made the great sacrifice. And our high priest said, done. And he sat down. And he is there at the right hand of the Father doing what? Interceding for us. Who is indeed interceding for I need Jesus to pray for me. And so do you. Because so often we lack either the words or the wisdom to pray or both. And he sees your weakness and he sees your sin and he sees your wounds and he says to his father, she's one of ours. He belongs to us. He's among the adopted. She's one of ours. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Now we come to the fifth question. And up to this point, Paul has been assuring us and rooting that assurance within the promises of the glory of the life to come in eternity. But now, he broadens that out and says, you know, the blessings belong in this life as well. Look at that fifth question, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who who shall do that? Who who can possibly separate us from the love of, of Christ? And it here... At this point, Paul's language, his, his, his categories shift from legal categories now to the language of the soul or the language of the heart. And he says, listen, you've been justified. No charges, no condemnation. But you know what? There's no separation either from the love that God has for you in Christ. And he just makes a whole laundry list of everything there is. And not a single bit of it Not angels or demons, not height nor depth, not life or death, not anything in the earth, under the earth, through the earth, around the earth. And just in case there's some kind of smart smart aleck, snarky person going, I thought of something. Paul says, before you say a word, I want to add one more thing. Nothing else can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is one mighty conviction that gives the final answer to all those questions. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure that none of this, none of these things, nothing you can possibly imagine can separate you from the love of Christ. And Christian, Christian, do you have this conviction? Do you have this hope? Has this been answered in your soul? Do you share Paul's rock-solid conviction that there is nothing in this world or outside of this world or beyond this world that can break the hold that God has upon your life in the love of Christ? Do you know that love? Do you know this Savior? Do you know this God? Do you have him as your Father? Nothing. Nothing can separate you from from the love of Christ. Now let me ask you this. Who walks away from that. Who says no thank you to that? 
search throughout the world, look into the deepest depths of the sea and the farthest reaches of the universe, and you will never find anything that will be able to separate you from the love of Christ if you indeed are His. And so I want to say to you today that among the most precious promises in all of God's Word are these very simple promises that we, I've been preaching through the Gospel of John in my church. And over and over and over again, in myriad ways, the Apostle and the Lord Jesus repeat over and over and over again the simplest of all promises. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Father who has loved you in Jesus Christ and did not spare His own Son, would no sooner give you up than He would give up Jesus Christ. The glorified saints in heaven, listen, the glorified saints in heaven may certainly be more happy than we are at this moment, but they are not one more iota loved than we are in this moment. The words of the old Scott, Jonathan Campbell Sharp. Let me no more my comfort draw from my frail hold of thee. In this alone rejoice with awe thy mighty grasp of me. Thanks be to God. Now, our Father and our God, we ask you to cause your word to take root in our hearts, that it might remain there, that its promises might flourish there, and that it might produce a harvest of righteousness in our lives for your glory and for our joy. Through Christ we pray. Amen.